0: Our scripture lesson this morning, which is read, is also from the book of Psalms. It is Psalm 20. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your birth sacrifice, Salem. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the King answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The psalms are a unique portion of the scripture. They are generally speaking prayer, but they are sung prayer. They are designed to be sung, and music tends to be poetical. Whatever language you're dealing with, uh, what people sing, tends to be poetry, and Poetry has a certain drama to it that uh, often you have to kind of read the poem to get a sense of the story that's being told. Here in Psalm 20, there is obviously a drama playing out in front of us. And the, the psalmist, King David, doesn't want to initially let us know exactly who is being talked about because he wants us to enter into that question. Uh, there is somebody who is being prayed for. The The psalm begins with somebody being lifted before God and a blessing being prayed upon them. Uh, we don't really know who that somebody is right off the bat. There are multiple people doing the praying. And again, David doesn't immediately tell us who those multiple people are, but there is a circle of people around the one individual, and they're praying for him, and they're lifting him up. Um and, and what is the reason for this prayer? Well, again, you have to follow the psalm to begin to really kind of understand what's going on. But as you read it, you come to realize the person being prayed for is the king of Israel. He is the ruling monarch of the visible people of God. There are people lifting him up in prayer. It's It's a very moving petition to God for the king, and the people who are praying for him are the king's subjects. They are lifting their monarch in prayer to God, and the reason for their prayer is this is a time of trouble and distress. May the Lord answer you in your trouble, they pray, which means that trouble has come we are talking about the man that God has chosen to be king of his people. You would expect that the king of the visible church given by God to have his position uh, would enjoy the power and the peace and the privilege of God. But actually kingship is a matter of power and of conflict. There is a king because there are other kingdoms and there is conflict between the kingdoms and if you are king, one of your major jobs is to protect the people God has assigned to you. And that means that somebody's going to come and try to harm them. And that's what's happening in the Saul. There is a time of trouble, uh, there's conflict, and the people of God are lifting up the king of God to God that he would be blessed at this moment of difficulty. The prayer is in verse 1 through 3, and I'll read it again. It goes down to that Selah. As, As you know, in the Psalms, when you hear the term Selah, it's a musical notation. It means that the music comes to a stop for a little while, but the reason why it comes to a stop is because you are supposed to, at this point, also kind of stop and kind of think about what's been said. Well, that happens right at the end of the prayer. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. That means that the king himself is a man of prayer. Uh, He is turning to God himself, and the people are praying, may God hear you as you are praying. You are given by God to protect his people. You depend upon his strength as much as any man does. So we know that you're seeking God in his strength. May God hear your prayer May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. Human beings have a tendency to idolize powerful human beings. Kings among men are lifted up as grander than humans. Uh, We put our trust in them because we are really a, a fallen species that leans to idolatry. It is idolatrous to trust in men. Well, the, the church of God is praying for the king of God, and they know that mere man is not to be trusted in. They are asking God to give him the power he needs because the power has to come from God. It can't come from a mere man, no matter how talented or powerful or gifted that man might be. May the God of Jacob defend you, May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. It was God's good pleasure to put among his people visibly the sanctuary of God, the the tabernacle, and then after that, the, the temple, which was built on the tabernacle model. In that sanctuary, you had the Shekinah glory, where God manifested his presence in a visible tangible way he wanted his people to know I am in your midst while the gods of the nations had a tendency to build their temples high on mountains and to emphasize uh, I am far above humanity I am a god um Zion is a mountain, and it's, quote, lifted above the hills. But if you go and see it today, Zion's a tiny little bump. And what makes it elevated is the fact that God condescended to visibly show his people, I am in your midst. I am not foreign to you. Now, I'm the holy God. I mean, I'm holy above all things mortal but I am willing to tabernacle among you. I am willing to dwell among you. I want to be at the middle of your community, which is where the the temple is. Um, God is there for his people. And as God's people are praying for their king, they are remembering that God has been willing to condescend to do that. He will be among us. And that is a deep comfort now in the middle of trouble. God is here. We're not sending dispatches far away into ethereal realms that we can't understand. God is right here in the midst of our trouble and we're asking God to send help from right next door for the king. And we are asking that the king's sacrifices be remembered. A covenant has sacrifices connected to it, that is just a part of it, but the one who makes sacrifice is in homage to the one they make sacrifice to, and so the king of Israel, the highest in the land, the highest office in the visual church, must approach God the Father with sacrifices. Uh, God is above him. The way David will put it in another psalm, in Psalm 110, is the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemy the footstool. Uh, the king of Israel knows that God is the real king. When I teach at Eastern, uh, one of the things that I do in the Jewish unit is I ask them, uh, what do you think the... God of the Bible, thinks about human kings and politics, because we're an extremely political people, and more so today than we have been at other times, Uh, so my class tends to think, okay, religion really is intersected with human politics, that's really just intimate to it, so I take them to 1 Samuel 8, where The people cry out to God, give us a king like all the nations have. And God says, sure, you want a king like all the nations have? I'll give you one like all the nations have. This is the way he'll be, and he's absolutely terrible, and God tells them that. Uh, But one of the things that you find in 1 Samuel 8, where you have uh, the beginning of a king among God's people that God did not initiate, is... God never says in the process, well, I'll give them a king but I'll stop being king. There is is none of that. God gives them a king like the nations have, but he remains the king of the church. He is above the king. Uh the buck doesn't stop with Saul. The buck doesn't stop with David. It stops with God himself and the men have to submit to the true God, the true king. While the the kings of the earth tend to make themselves gods, Israel's king doesn't have that luxury. I mean, he may, but it's totally sinful. God is king of kings, lord of lords, and his king, who he has given to the church to protect the church, nevertheless must bring sacrifices and offerings to him. And now, in the time of his trouble, the people are praying, may the Lord receive these offerings that you have made and are making, and receive them kindly. Because God is king, he's lord, he's above, and just because you have brought a sacrifice to him doesn't mean that he has to receive it. He, he could easily uh, do a Cain and Abel on you, you know, and not receive your sacrifices. So the, the people of God are praying for the king of God, oh please may God remember your sacrifices, and may he treat you kindly now. It's a, a lifting up of the king, uh, it's very beautiful. And it shows the people's focus on God above the king. The king, for his part, is pictured as having a heart that goes along with his office. Again, among human beings, uh, our Lord Christ puts it perfectly when he says, now, among the Gentiles, among typical human cultures, the great men of the earth love to lord it over you. I mean, they, they consider themselves better than you. The reason why they're in charge of you is because they can. They do what they want. It's truly a matter of selfishness. But then he turns to his people and says, it shall not be so among you, but the, the greatest of you shall be the least. Uh, you'll be a servant. You'll care for people. Well, all the way back in the Hebrew Bible, the king of the church, God's given king, he is designed to be a servant of the people. God says to the king, your job is to rule, yes, but your job is also to gather, to defend, to nurture, to provide for. There's a very fatherly aspect to king, and you are to care for the people. And as the people are lifting this prayer to God, we see uh, they're able to talk about his heart, and his heart is what God would want in the king. May he grant you according to your heart's desire, the people pray, which means that the desire of the king's heart is something that they want to have happen. And fulfill all your purpose. You have a drive, a goal as king. This is a good and holy drive. We're all for it. And we're lifting to God that he would back that. We will rejoice in your salvation. Uh, Salvation in scripture is a matter of when you die, you go to heaven. But it is also a matter of God cares for you in this world. It's not either or, it's both. And the psalmist is viewing God's care in terms of this battle. The, the enemies of the kingdom want to destroy the kingdom, but God will hear our prayers for the king, and he'll work for the king. It won't be the king himself. It will be the power of God, but, but we're praying for the king for this to happen, and God will pour out his salvation and we will be delivered not just in the next world, but in this one, and we will rejoice in that. In fact, we are convinced that God will do that. We're going to lift up our banners in God's deliverance because we know that God's like that. And again, as this section comes to an end, they say, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So the king is pictured as seeking God himself and petitioning God for his people. They are in need of salvation. They are in need of God's care. The king is praying to God, O oh Lord, uh, like Moses or like Paul, he's, he's saying who himself is worthy or, or able to do this. No man on earth can do this. Uh, I am petitioning you for the sake of your people. As they pray for me, I'm praying for them. Let your power pour out for us. Let there be victory. And the people are praying also, let there be victory. The the psalm moves on, having looked at the heart of the king, effectively to looking at the heart of God. uh, The psalmist says, effectively, these prayers are going to be heard by God because it's in God's nature to answer these kind of prayers. Now I know, says the psalmist, I may have at some point wondered, I may have doubted in in, in the darkness, I wasn't sure if this was true, but now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. It's a reference again to the king, God has placed him there for a purpose, God is going to maintain his purpose, I know that the Lord will save his anointed, he will answer him from his holy heaven uh god doesn't have to answer our prayers but god has a nature and god's nature is to love his people to care for his people uh when god's people go to him in petition when they go to him humbly when they say oh lord you know we're really in need and we're turning to you it is god's nature that he responds to that and he will answer it and so Uh, God is shown as being willing to defend his king. Um, And God is the only hope of his church. In verse 7 and 8, the psalmist says, some trust in chariots. Again, we've got a a battle on the background of the psalm. Uh, This is military language. When the psalm talks about a chariot, it's talking about a chariot, Uh, And chariots of the day are the tanks of the day. They are the weapons of war of the day, the high tech. Some people trust in those, says the psalm. I can understand why they would. They look very impressive. Uh, Power seems to adhere in them. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. Same setup. The cavalry is at this point the the spear tip of war. Uh, Human beings, again, idolatrously have a tendency to trust in their own strength and their own uh, toys. Some do that, but we're not going to do that. We are going to remember or trust, as some translations put it, we are going to remember and trust in the name of the Lord our God. It really doesn't matter who has the largest battalions, no matter what the army tells you. Uh, God is Lord of everything that happens on earth. And uh, if, if, you, if you get in God's way and you happen to be the Egyptians who are the greatest power on earth, God will step on you. It doesn't matter how large your army is. It will end up in the Red Sea. And we're going to trust in God. Uh, we're not going to look to anybody else or anything else. God is our hope and our strength. And if we can't trust in God, then we got no trust. Doesn't matter how many tanks we got. I remember years ago in Iowa when we were trying to forge a Reformation Society there, a colleague of mine brought in a letter he had gotten. We, we all get these kind of letters. If you're pastor of a church, there are companies out there that want to sell you their curricula and their programs. Uh, so, I mean, you can use this stuff and you can use it for starting fires if you get so much of it, but he brought it in and it said on the outside of the letter, when preaching the word of God is not enough, that that's how they enter that they, they brought their program to his attention. And uh, he didn't open it. None of us opened it because quite frankly, if preaching the word of God is not enough, then literally there's nothing else that you can go on to. God is the hope of the church. God has communicated through his word. God's power flows through his word. If God is not enough, then nothing will help. Well, the psalmist knows that. He says we don't trust in anything human, even the things that really look like we ought to. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. He gave us the king. We are his people. He tabernacles among us. If that's not enough, then we're doomed. We, we, we got nothing else. And then, as the psalm ends, it depends upon how you translate it. In the, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, they translated it this way, and it's possible to do it linguistically. If I can get my hands to work here. Uh, the, the last verse reads... Uh, oh Lord, save the king, and hearken unto us in the day when we call upon thee. Uh, that makes good sense. It's what the prayer has looked like up to this point. Uh, we're praying about the king, save him, and listen to our prayer. Perfectly with language, and that may be what it's it's supposed to be translated as. But uh, most translations translate it this way: save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. And so as the, the, the psalm comes to an end, it looks like the psalmist himself, the people who are praying themselves, the last thought they have is that while we pray for the human king and we really want God to work for the human king, the last thing that we really need to remember is it's not him you're the king, you're above all kings, Lord, manifest your power through the king, save. So that's Psalm 20, and uh, as far as explications go, I feel like I've done a pretty good job of it, but you may be asking yourself, how does that apply to me right here and now? Because I'm not an Israelite, and I don't have a physical king, and the the physical tabernacle is not among us. I'm a Congregationalist in the middle of Mount Vernon, so when I sing the psalm, what am I saying? Well, remember that things like physical temples, they are just sticks and bricks, Scripturally, the tabernacle is a type and a shadow. The real temple of God, where God has chosen to dwell with his people, has always been the gathering of his people. That that's not just New Testament, that's what's always happened. The physical temple reminded us of that. And the king who they're praying for comes out of 1 Samuel 8. It comes out of God's people saying, We want a king, and God didn't really want to do that at that point. Uh, He was going to give us a king, but the kings that we see in the Scripture, uh, a lot of them are really very ungodly men, and even the godly ones aren't that godly. Um, The real king that God intended to place among us was the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And uh, a physical battle like what probably gave rise to the psalm is itself effectively a type in a the shadow. The, the great battles that are being fought, the real ones, they're not fought with chariots. They're fought in spiritual places, by spiritual entities, in spiritual ways. And if you're looking for the real king that is really God's anointed, there's only one Again, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this psalm is actually talking about him. Lord, save your anointed king. He is in trouble. He is fighting a spiritual war, and he's doing it for us, but he has to depend upon you. Lord, be with him. How can you pray that? How can you sing that without thinking about, what Christ went through the night before the, the, the crucifixion. There, in the Gospel of Luke, this is what we read took place that night. Coming out, he went out to the Mount of Olives, and as he was accustomed, his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, Jesus Christ is God the Son. He's the second person of the Godhead. He is also, however, fully human, the son of David, and he is praying to God, I have to face the cross tomorrow. Lord, I need your strength. I am dependent upon you. Uh, The man, Christ Jesus, had to learn trust in God, learn it existentially. Um, The way the writer to Hebrews puts it is, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, has become the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The writer to Hebrews is picturing that night. Christ is calling out to his father. He is the king of Israel. He is about to face the greatest spiritual battle that has ever been fought, and he is seeking his father in his strength. And he has invited his disciples to come pray for him. He mentions also pray about themselves, you know, pray that you don't fall in temptation. But he invites God's people around him to pray, and he's praying because he's the king of Israel, and he has to depend upon the God of Israel. And, of course, he wins that battle. But that is not the only battle that our Lord Christ faces. When you get to the book of Acts, the book of Acts begins with, uh, Theophilus, the former book I wrote to you, referring to the Gospel of Luke, was the record of what Jesus began to do before he was taken up from the earth. In saying it that way, he is saying, now, in the former book, he, used, he was doing those things. In this book, he's doing these things. And in the book of Acts, you only see him bodily in the first chapter, but he is present with his church in everything that happens, the king of Israel is leading his people in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is about King Jesus and what he's doing. And in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, after the apostles have been uh, arrested and beaten up for serving the Lord Christ and evangelizing in his name, uh, this is what we read in Acts chapter 4. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. So they're praying and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So this is the kings of the earth fighting Jesus well after the cross. They are fighting the king of Israel who is fighting against them, and God's people are praying about the king of Israel that he would be victorious because he is fighting. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the anointed king, So they respond to spiritual war happening by saying, Lord, send your power for the name of your king, who is at war right now. He is leading us in battle. Uh, Let strength come from the sanctuary, effectively. Come and win this war because we are at war. And, of course, it goes on and says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So the God of Israel is very pleased that this happens. He wants the people of God to pray for the King of God, that the King of God would be successful. Because the battle is not the churches. Um, In churches that focus on things like spiritual war, one of the things they usually focus on is you're at war you, you are doing the fighting. And there is some truth to that. I mean, honestly, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. But who really is fighting any spiritual war? Is it really you? Is the battle yours? May God forbid, you are but a foot soldier. You are in the army of the King of Israel. Who is marching against the dark forces in the dark places? It is Jesus the Christ. It is his battle to be won, and he is the one fighting it. If there is salvation to be rejoiced in, it will be his salvation. The God of Israel will give victory to Israel through the King of Israel, and the people of God should pray for the King of Israel to be victorious. When you are salt, light, and leaven, as you are commanded to be, there are spiritual forces in the world who don't want that to happen. They are arrayed in battle, not against you, but against the God who's told you to do it. When you preach the name of Jesus and you proclaim salvation in him, there are ranks upon ranks of dark forces that want to stop that. And the battle will belong to the Lord. So the church, when the church prays, may we be salt light and leaven, when the church prays, may we evangelize the lost, she needs to realize she is praying, oh God, may King Jesus come among us and do this. May he lead us in victory. May the glory be his because the kingdom is his. He has been assigned to care for his people. He has been assigned to nurture us. He has been assigned to care for us. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. Um, We're praying for the Lord Christ when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Lord Christ still leads us. And when we pray for the world, uh, we're not praying, Lord, let us be the stars. Um, we're praying, may Christ be victorious. Any spiritual good that happens in the world, we're praying that Christ would do it. And if we don't realize that, then there's kind of an idolatry of us. We are praying for the King of Israel. We are praying for his victory. And this psalm reminds us of that. We lift him up that he would conquer the earth. And his father's good pleasure as that happened. So we've kind of got this in the bag. We're praying to God to do something that God wants to do, but it is God's will that we seek God for it. And it is God's will that Jesus Christ, King of Israel be glorified in it. Odds are God the father isn't gonna answer a prayer that forgets that the battle belongs to the Lord. It is the father's will to glorify the son. And so we pray. Oh, Lord, let us be salt. Let us be light. Let us be leavened. Let us win these battles that have been put before us, and they really have. Uh, this morning, we looked very briefly at the book of Jude, and the book of Jude is combat language. But the battle belongs to the Lord. Never forget whose it is. He learned to trust in God. You are called to trust in God. He is the king that God will glorify.